Associate pastors here and would love to get a chance to meet you if you're newer to the church. Um, we're six weeks into our series on Romans and over the last four weeks now, including today, we have been looking at a specific section where Paul has been building his case of the issue at hand, the problem that we have, which is our sin. Uh, it started back in Romans 1. 18 to what we will complete today through 320 is this whole section where Paul is addressing um, our sin. And each week over the last four, we've drawn our attention back to this statement that Paul is trying to lead us to, that due to the presence of sin, humanity does not deserve and cannot earn God's righteousness, God's righteous eternal favor. And today, the passage that we're looking at and chapter 3, 9 through 20, it's almost like you're going to feel like Paul is treating this like he's a trial lawyer. Like he, he is bringing his case before the court and bringing his indictment upon you and I. You know, in a way of recap, as he's been presenting his evidence against everyone, he's addressed those who try to be moral. He's addressed those Jews, the, the Gentiles. He's, he's kind of systematically broken down all the evidence of uh, why we are sinful. And so, kind of in a way of recap, chapter 1, 18 through 32, Paul presents that our sin is pervasive in our thoughts, in our desires, in our behaviors. And in chapter 2, 1 through 16, he presents, hey, the law and our conscience prove our sinfulness. And he finishes up in chapter 2, 25 through 29. He says, religious practice. He kind of lays waste to the idea that, hey, circumcision is my marking that I am, I'm good. No pious behavior can put you in right standing before God. And so Paul has been laying this foundation of the indictment on our entire human race. And what we're going to see today in the passage that we read is Paul brings in a key eyewitness. And his key eyewitness is God. And so, as we read this passage, my hope is that what we pull out of this is this. Through God's testimony, is that the effects of sin render the whole human race condemned before God. Paul begins this final section by bringing God to the stand, which I'm pretty sure they skipped the whole, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, because... He's God, right? So we move past that. And if you got an NIV, the way verse 9 starts, Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Let's read. I'm going to read from the CSB. Um, 9 through 20, what Paul has to say in way of his bringing his key eyewitness to the stand. Picking up in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. And no one does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Venom, viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
We, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Whew. Welcome to church, everybody. Just diving into the fun-loving section in Scripture here today. The effects of sin render the whole human race condemned before God. Before we go any further, I want you to hear this. Don't check out on me today. Don't hurry past this scripture. Square yourself to it with me. Take a hard look at it with me. You know, see, our, our tendency is often to run past these hard passages of scripture and find the ones that are a little bit more comfy. You know, this passage definitely does not have any warm fuzzies in it. We want to skip past no one is righteous, not even one. Your throat is like an open grave. We want to skip past those to hurry up and get to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. It just feels better, right? Hang with me today. Don't check out on me. Don't run past this this passage. I'm asking to square yourself with to it for 25 minutes with me. There is beauty in this passage. Thanks, Johnny. Um, I think the first thing we need to see uh, and notice is this. When Paul started this in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, he lists a multitude of sins that Jews and Gentiles and moral people are all committing. And it's multiple, it's sins. And today, Paul makes a distinct shift Verses 3 through 9, he says, Paul says, we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. You know, Tim, Tim taught on this a little bit last week, um, that what Paul is really addressing here is the condition of a heart of man. And the reality of that is that we are underneath sin. It doesn't matter what you have or have not done in your life, it does not matter. We are, because of the condition of our heart, we are rendered underneath sin. So Paul brings God in as his key eyewitness to say, hey, let me testify to the condition of man. And Paul says, no, 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 hang on. We are guilty. You know, the very fact that in chapter one, that list of all those sins the very fact that there's those are still evident in our lives today proves that we are guilty of sin, that we are still underneath sin. So in this passage today, Paul draws our attention to God through seven Old Testament passages. Six of them are in Psalm, one is in Isaiah, and through them he's bringing his culminating argument to the courtroom. He's presenting his case of our indictment. And he shows us what God has to say about humanity. If you look at verses 10 through 18, let's look at what God says about humanity. Paul first draws our attention to the state of man. In 10 through 12, he says, There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. The state of man, we are guilty. We are dead men and women walking. No amount of religious practice or pious attitudes or good deeds helps us. Not one of us is righteous. Not one is good. We're guilty because of the condition of our heart. We're guilty because we are immediately rendered underneath sin. Not only that, but Paul goes on with his indictment with God, and he says, hey, look, look what God says about the extent of your sin. This is 10 through 17. He says, therefore, no one is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and alike become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. The extent of our sin, it affects our mind. No one understands. It affects our heart. No one seeks God, and it affects our will. All have turned away. No one does good. Paul, through God's testimony, states, hey, the effects of our sin render the entire human race worthless. The sinfulness of man, the depravity of man renders us worthless. That's hard to swallow. Paul is pointing to the totality of our corruption. The mind, the heart, the body, the will, it depraves every part of our being. You know, I've been, I was trying to figure out how to, how to make a connection here in, in illustration, and this is the best I could come up with. The effects of sin are similar to my golf game. Pretty, pretty worthless, okay? Not in that manner, but here's where I'm going. If you watch professional golf, uh, if you're one of those weird people like me, um, you notice that golfers spend an absorbent amount of time staring at their golf ball, fidgeting with their golf ball. And the reason for that is... When a golf golfer, professional golfer, hits a ball with the club speed that they have and puts the amount of spin on a ball that they do, um, that force, when it hits a ball, scuffs or scratches or tears the top layer of their golf ball. And they're looking at it because if it has one of those imperfections within it, it affects every part of their game. It affects how, they, how much spin they can put on a ball. It affects the flight of the ball. It, it, it affects the speed of the flight of the ball. It affects the trajectory of the ball. They play that game with such precision that as soon as that thing has a, a scuff in it, it is worthless to them. And they want to toss it to the side. And the rules of golf are when you start, when you tee off, you have to use the same ball start to finish on a hole. So from the time you tee off to the time you hear that sweet sound of the ball rolling in the cup, you got to use the same ball. And now there is some leniency in the fact that when you get to the green, you can mark your ball and pick it up. Um, but you're not supposed to touch your ball unless you lose it in the water or the woods, and you have to drop a ball and receive a penalty for that. You're supposed to use the same ball. And the reality is that golf ball is still good. It's still usable to the normal person. But to a professional golfer, they don't want to use it anymore because it affects their goal and their plans. It affects how they play the game. And in the same way, God wants to draw men and women to him 
to be used for his kingdom, for his purposes. But when we don't deal with the sin in our life, when we remain in a sin nature, we become worthless. He can't use us the way he wants to use us. We still exist. We still are around. But we are rendered useless and worthless to God because we're not dealing with what's inside of us. The sin affects our minds, our hearts, our will. And that's what renders us worthless. God longs for a relationship with man. He longs to draw men to him. But as long as man remains in their sin, we remain worthless in a dead man walking. Not only to the extent of our sin, but it's also the expression of our sin. God points this out when he lays out his testimony in 13 through 16 about how this affects the physical body. He says, their throat, it's an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. If you're familiar with the website, the Babylon Bee, you'll, you'll get this. If you don't, you can thank me later. Um, the Babylon Bee is a Christian satire website, uh, similar to like The Onion. They don't write anything that's true or accurate. They just kind of make light of Christian things. Um, but they posted an article this week that couldn't be more perfect to accompany this passage in Romans 3. Uh, the picture, the article's title or heading had a picture of the globe on it, and it said in the title, it said, God decided that he was going to cut all toxic people out of his life. 7.5 billion dead, meaning all of us, right? Our minds, our thoughts, from our mouth all the way to our feet, we are dead men on a path away from God. We are toxic in our relationship to him. The, the phrasing, our throat is an open grave. That there is nothing but death that comes out of our mouth. That is hard to hear. You know, I, I heard Tim Keller say once, I can't even get up on stage and preach without sinning. Which is true for me today as well. There is nothing within us that is good that's apart from God. The expression of our sin taints the glory of God. And finally, in this passage, Paul, he starts and finishes his key witness, his testimony here, with the cause of all of this. See, there's, in man, there are two things that destroy, we do, we do to ourselves that destroy us. In verse 11, he says, no one seeks God in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know everyone's story in here, but this is my testimony. It's my story. I'd love to hear what yours is. If you checked out this morning, re-engage with me here. Do you fear God? Do you seek God? You see, I, I grew up in a family that wasn't extraordinarily wealthy, but we certainly did not have any needs. We landed in that upper middle class, you know, status. But I didn't have any needs. I didn't recognize a need for a savior. I didn't have any wants that drew me to look for something outside of myself. My wants consisted of wanting the latest pair of Jordans. 
You know, I, it was trying to figure out how do I convince my parents that spending $100 on a pair of basketball shoes was worth it, which I don't even think you can buy a pair of basketball shoes for under $100 today. But I had no fear of God. You know, if, I, if this was presented to me when I was 15 or 16 years old, I simply would have just listened to that indictment on my character and thought, eh, whatever. Wouldn't have bothered me. But as God draws us near, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the reality of that statement is that when we see God in right context, when we see him in the right understanding, we do begin to fear him. We do draw closer to him, which is why it's the beginning of wisdom, because the more that we fear and the more that we want to know who he is and understand him, we begin to grow. So Paul closes his statements, his closing argument in verses 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight and by the works of the law, because of the knowledge of sin comes through the law. It's to this point which Paul has been relentlessly moving since Romans 1.18. That we are simply without excuse. Romans 3.9 today says that literally all the inhabitants of the whole world, we are under sin. To finishing in 3.19, he says the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. The Greek word there for subject is huparikos, literally means under judgment with no possibility of defense. Paul's closing argument here states, whether you are subject to it as a Jew or whether now you've been made aware of it as a Gentile, the law brings knowledge and awareness of our sin, and what are you going to do about it? Because all have disregarded and even stifled their own knowledge in order to go their own way. We're under judgment with no possibility of a defense. With all of us, without an exception, are inexcusable before God. The whole human race. We are guilty and we are condemned. Paul's argument here is not just against the self-confidence of Jews. It is literally any and every attempt at self-salvation of a human being. We are completely speechless and condemned. And Paul leaves us here for a moment. You know, if this were a sermon, he would be, there would be a long pause here. So much so that we're going to take a long pause here. We're not going to jump too quickly to the but now that's in verse 21. We're going to wait and we're going to square ourselves to this passage this morning and look, take a hard look and self-evaluate in our own hearts what's going on before we jump to the but now that comes next week. Tim gets all the good passages. <laughs> to be fair, I picked, this pa- I picked this date before I knew what the passage was, so it's not Tim's fault. I want to point out a few things in in way of application. You know, we're looking at a really difficult text this morning. And I want us to see a few things. 
And the first is that we need to see that this is loving for Paul to present this, to state this to us. However difficult it is to receive correction here, we need to understand this. And Paul desires that each one of us truly understands and truly believes in our heart that we are sinners, that there is nothing on our own part that we can do. We, We literally are guilty and stand condemned. And the reality of why he leaves us here is that unchecked sin leads to pain, to misery, and to eternal destruction. You know, the, the reality in the past four weeks of messages here at LCF is that these messages have eternal consequences. It would be far easier just to skip over this section and kind of get to the but now and, and move on. But Paul knows that this is loving press in and say, hey, understand this. And that's why we're here. We're not skipping this passage. We're digging into it today. It's love that convicts Paul to bring this loving reproof. You know, Paul goes on and says in Colossians 1, 28, he says, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's loving for Paul to point this out because he desires to see each one of us, each one of you, to be presented as mature in Christ. John Owen is a pastor, author, and teacher um, who wrote extensively on the subject of overcoming sin and temptation. He's really famous for saying um, a few, maybe maybe you recognize this statement, but he's famous for saying, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen died in 1683. Yes, our culture has changed dramatically. But you know what hasn't changed? The sinful nature of human, human beings. For centuries, John Owen's work has challenged Christians to think afresh on how they face the reality of sin and temptation in their life. Owen has this incredible ability to call us to wake up from a sleepy and apathetic attitude towards our holiness. He demands that we engage with him. He demands that we do some self-examination, some self-reflection, to just be self-aware. I want to highlight two particular principles that Owen teaches on. And they are what is to fill and to long when it comes to killing your sin. And the first is that the action refers to filling, you know, to fill. Owen says that if you want to put sin to death in your lives, we need to identify the sin. We need to identify the nature of that sin. And you need to fill your mind with the, and your conscience with the guilt, the weight, and the evil of that sin. Let, your see, let yourself see it in all of its grossness. See it as a willful act of rebellion against God. Feel the weight of that guilt. And we need to do this because we need to consider just how dangerous sin is. We need to consider just how much it dishonors God. And how, (laughs) 
we, we kind of get to these places that if we were able to realize that, we realize why Paul is able to make statements like he does in Romans 3 today. John Owen says this, Sin, always at its utmost, every time it rises up to tempt or entice, <coughs> sorry, sin aims at its utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be, would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it had its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like a grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposal. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. This ought to sit heavy on your soul to realize how dangerous sin can be. Sin has eternal consequences. When left unchecked, here's why John Owen says, hey, you need to start here. You need to fill yourself with this. He says, only when we grasp the true weight and guilt and evil of our sin can we make an authentic shift to desperately wanting to stop sinning, to truly desiring to see God glorified. When we get to this type of desperation, we can truly long for deliverance. Do you want to be free from the bondage of sin? In the space of filling, you're able to see with a sharp focus your sin. And it looks horrible. But now and only now are you in the right place to long for deliverance from it. Now you want to put sin to death for the best reasons. You're not simply caught up in the fear of consequences. You're not simply caught up in the fear of the embarrassment or shame if it gets exposed. Now you see the cost and the guilt of your sin. You long to be delivered from it so God can be glorified within you. Long for it. Cry out for it. And here's the beauty of the word of God. We need scripture to help fill us with the weight of our sin. We need passages like today's passage that are indictments on the entire human race to help fill us. It ought to fill us. Scripture brings you to the cross filled with the knowledge of your sin and longing for God's leading to a path of peace, longing to glorify God. You know, I, I see it in this passage. I see hope in our passage today. You know, 317 says that the path of peace they have not known and the reality is, we can know the path of peace. You know, these Old Testament passages, the seven of them that Paul cites here, he cites them to bring our indictment upon us. But I would encourage you to read those passages in their full context. Yes, they, they are the words of God, and he says very strongly about you and I. But if you go back and read the passages in context, the entire chapter or a little bit more, 
you will see a deep sense of confidence and hope based upon the person who's writing and the provisions of God. Let's look at just one of them. Romans 3.17 is actually cited from Isaiah 15, chapter 59, verses 7 and 8. And in that, he says, Their feet run after evil, and they rush to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are sinful thoughts. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. They have not known the path of peace. And if you keep reading, move down from verse 59, verse 8, and you go down to 59, verse 16, you're going to read this. Isaiah says, God saw that there was no man, and he was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation, and his own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So he will repay according to their deeds, fury to his enemies, retribution to his foes, and he will repay the coast and islands. They will fear the name of the Lord in the west and in glory in the east. For he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who's turned from their transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth, from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children, not from now on forever, says the Lord. You see, we can look at passages like this and we can really reflect, do some self-reflection, some self-examination in our hearts. And through it, you can see that there is a justifier that brings salvation on his arm, that his own righteousness supports him as he comes. You see, Jesus brings you the opposite of every one of these indictments. Let's look at him. There's no one righteous, not even one. Jesus is the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Jesus does understand. He did seek God. He didn't turn away. He set his face toward Jerusalem, resolute, knowing what was to come in his crucifixion. God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Their throat is an open grave. Their deceit, they deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Jesus' words bring life and they bring truth. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. Jesus is the path. He is the Prince of Peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jesus is the manifestation of God. I want to close this morning by reading Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I want you just to think about the fact that Jesus is the manifestation of God, the one who brings salvation on his arm, the one whose righteousness supports him. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, 
the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through this blood shed on the cross. Friends, would you stand and worship with us?